aforementioned prayer requests. You would be with each one of them, heal them, touch them, and however they need. Father, we again come to you asking you as we open your word to have a fresh mind, a clear mind. Lord, sometimes our minds wander and we need divine intervention to keep us focused. And uh, your word is wonderful, Lord. We love it and we, we desire it. And so I pray that you would just speak to us tonight. May you be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. And God, again, I yield myself to you and ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. As you will have noticed as we've been going through Isaiah, there is a repeated pattern. And the repeated pattern is this, that Israel would continually seek the way of the world. They would continually go away from God. They would worship other gods. They would have earthly leaders that they followed that led them astray. And then along would come a prophet, and a prophet would give them a dire warning and, and call them to repentance. Remember, the prophet represented God to the people, and the priest represented the people to God. And so he would come and give a message, and they would forsake the message, and God would bring judgment upon them. They would repent, and then they would start this cyclical behavior all over again. In our passage of Scripture, I would like to maybe just start with a, a little illustration. Could you imagine, many of you have children, and you imagine when your children were growing up and you told your kids, listen, I don't want you to hang out with these people. If you hang out with these people, they're going to lead you down the wrong road and you're going to find yourself in trouble. Has any parent ever said that? And then later to find out that when your child got into some trouble, maybe someone was bullying your child, and your child went to the very people you warned that child not to go to rather than coming to you. How would you feel? Would you feel betrayed that the child that you asked not to hang out with him, you commanded him not to hang out with him because if you did, you would become like them. And then along comes someone who starts bullying that child and rather than coming to you for help, they go to the very people you warned them not to. To associate with. That's exactly what the children of Israel did. God warned them. He warned them repeatedly not to make alliances with pagan nations because more often than not, those pagan nations would pull them down into idolatry. And just as he told them, they did, and thus it happened. And so in our text is a perfect illustration of that. 30 and 31 have to deal with uh, the same, same situation, the scenario where the children of Israel turned to Egypt rather than turning to the Lord. They heard wind, got wind of the Assyrian invasion that was coming, and rather than turning to God and relying upon His help, they turned to them for help. Notice in verse 1, notice this woe or this, this pronouncement of judgment. Woe to the rebellious Children. Who are the rebellious children? The rebellious children are Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Why would he give forth this word of judgment, this word of prophecy of judgment? Well, notice how he describes them. Who take counsel, but not of me. You know, it's a great insult when God's people 
go to everyone else for counsel but to him. Have you ever have you ever had a situation in your life where you were in a bad time or dire straits or something and you sought help from maybe every you know people that you respect and you went and you sought help from them and then you dawned on you I've sought help and counsel from everyone but God and as a last resort you turn to prayer has anyone ever fallen in that trap we all have we all have and he says you're rebellious children because number one you take counsel but not of me how in the world can God's people go to pagan people for help when we have the promises of God? We have the one who created the heavens and the earth. We have the one who made everything, who holds everything intact. Why would we go to the pagan world? Notice what else he said. And who devise plans, but not of my spirit. Not of my spirit. It's interesting. We are so far removed from a normal Christianity. Today, we think normal Christianity, people who are normal Christians defined by the Bible, are super Christians. Notice with me in James chapter 4 that, that there is a problem with planning without God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're God's people and you make your plans apart from God, that's an issue, that's a problem. In James chapter 4, and verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor and appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now watch this. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Normal Christianity. We don't plan without God. Planning without God and boasting about it is evil, according to the Word of God. I'm not taking it out of context. I just read it to you completely in context. And so God's problem with <clears throat> Judah was she made plans without him. They planned to go to Egypt thinking that Egypt would support them and help them and do for them what only God could do for them. That's a big deal. As a matter of fact, in the, at the last of verse 1 there, he says that they may add sin to sin. They were compounding the problem. Why? Well, first of all, they disobeyed God. They disobeyed God. Do you know that all, A-L-L, -L, all idolatry, putting anything before God, worshiping false gods, all idolatry begins with disobedience. When you or someone steps on the road of disobedience, you are going down that road where it takes you. And this is what they did. They added sin not only to their disobedience, but what I think is the greatest insult is just saying, God, I don't need you. A disregard for God. How can we as God's people have such a disregard for Him? Notice verse 2, who walk to go down to Egypt. And they've not asked my advice. They go to pagans who worship statues, who worship all manner of things. And they never asked the advice of God. How many times have we in our lives made major decisions without asking God? 
How many times in our lives have we just been aloof to God? I'm not saying we do it on purpose, but I'm saying we do it. And he says, who walk to go down to Egypt, which means it was a calculated effort. It was something they thought through. It was something they decided it was the best for them to do. And they went to Egypt rather than seeking the advice of God. Notice this. To strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. This is almost laughable. They thought that making an alliance with Pharaoh, they were strengthening themselves. But what they didn't understand was they were setting themselves up for a great fall. So what are the consequences? You know there are always consequences to sin. God forgives sin, but there are consequences to sin. And we don't want to talk about that in our land today. We don't want to talk about consequences of sin. I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. Let's hold hands, light candles, and sing Kumbaya on our little coffee mats with little um, bean bags and all that stuff. The point is, they were seeking to strengthen themselves in Pharaoh, and they were trusting in the shadow of Egypt. And so there are consequences for that. What are the consequences? Number one, verse three, therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. Does anyone feel like there's no shame today? I remember I was called one time, the people are no longer in this church, and I was called one time to go. There was a, a problem, and I went there, and this individual had done something. And when I got there, the individual was ashamed, and I was just trying to restore and pray. And, 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 and this person was there, and we were working through scriptures and talking about it, and there was shame there. And all of a sudden, a sponsor came, and when the sponsor came, all of a sudden, the shame was gone, and the individual went from a shame to a victim. Everyone today is a victim. There's no shame. But the Bible says, therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. You won't notice it. You won't recognize it until those of you that are left look at the ruins of Jerusalem and all the people that were taken captive, and all the people that were killed, you will then realize your shame. I once was told by someone in the other church, someone had fallen into grave sin. It was a public figure, and the person was repentant. And someone said, well, they were only repentant because they got caught. You think God doesn't know that? <laughs> You think God doesn't know that human nature is, is that you will try to hide until you're caught? Shame. We never think of shame being a consequence of sin. But shame's not a good word in the Bible. It's not a good thing. Notice what else he says. The second result or consequence. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation just like the walls of the city they were going to be brought down low they were going to be humbled you know 
the Bible tells us to humble ourselves in the sight of God. If you don't humble yourself, He will humble you. They made this alliance. They were going to be represented as shame and humiliation. Now to you, what's the big deal? Well, to the nation of Israel, they thought they were God's people. They thought they were the kingdom, the Jews of all Jews, and everybody was going to be subservient to them, and they were going to be world-renowned. But what they didn't know is they were about to be humbled as a consequence of their sin. Verse 4, for his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Haines. We don't know where Haines is specifically, but it's in that region of Egypt near Zoan. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be help or benefit, but a shame, and here's the last consequence, and also a reproach. When you see this word reproach, you need to think about this. Because these people were telling everyone and all the surrounding nations that they were the people of God. And when they fell and they fell hard, they brought reproach upon themselves, which connected them to God, which to the scoffers brought reproach upon God. And if you study this Hebrew word out, it is very close akin, now listen, to blasphemy. They, the people of God, as a consequence of their sin, were a reproach equal to blasphemers. These are dire consequences. So what do we see here in verse 6? We see God telling, in verses 6 and 7, them how foolish it is to trust in Egypt. The burden against the beasts of the south, Negev or Egypt, through a land of trouble and anguish. So what he is saying is, is you're putting all your trust in a people that have to come a long journey through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent, they have to make this trek through the wilderness with all these evil animals. Now watch this. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. They're not ready to fight. Now watch this. To a people who shall not profit. Therefore, or let's say, for the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. They're going to benefit you nothing. It's the equivalent of sojourners taking all of their property and going through an arduous journey through the wilderness where serpents and lions and, and they're on the backs of donkeys with all their, their materials. They can't fight. The Egyptians shall help in no vain, in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, Hem, Shabeth. Rahab 
in Hebrew is a mythical sea monster. It can be translated like this, a harmless dragon. You know, a dragon, instead of spitting fire, it burps smoke. It's harmless. It can do nothing. And you put all your eggs in that basket. You thought that Egypt would come marching in like a grand army, and they come in with all their phylacteries, and they come in with all their wealth, and they're not even going to make the journey. How often do we turn to the world's methods and because we do, we're losers. We lose in the situation. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, I want you to go and I want you to write it before them on a tablet. I want them to remember this, this warning I'm giving them for every generation all the way throughout time. Look at verse 8. Now go write it before them on a tablet, a permanent record, and note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. You think you're great, Judah, but you will be remembered throughout history as being a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the word of the Lord. That's your, that's your heritage. Isn't that terrible? I mean, most people want to die and leave a good heritage, right? <laughs> You're going to be known as a lying, rebellious, stiff-necked people that would not listen to God. In so much as, in verse 10, you say to the seers, do not see. You say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things and prophesy deceits. I read this, and I can't help but think of where we are today in our land. They didn't want the Word of God. They wanted smooth-talking prophets that would build them up and make them feel good about themselves. They wanted, they wanted people that would not tell them the truth, but tell them what they wanted to hear. And it's interesting, Timothy writes of a time... The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They'll have itching ears. They won't want to hear the truth. And that's where we are today. Entertain me. Make me feel good about church. Make me see. Let's, let's watch a movie and get a spiritual application from the movie. We don't want to go verse by verse through Isaiah. We don't want to go verse by verse for anything. We just want you to pick and choose and have good, positive messages. It reminds me of the old boy who was a hard preacher. He preached hard. His board got him together and said, Preacher, we want you to be more positive. And he said, okay, I'll be a positive. And he went to preach the next time, and he got up in the pulpit. He said, I've been instructed to be more positive. 
And he said, I can tell you right now, I am positive I'm against sin. And he began to preach just as hard as he ever preached. But we think of this as something new in our day. That having itching ears just came about in the 21st century. It didn't. They dealt with it all the way back in Isaiah's time. They didn't want to hear the prophets. We want you to say what we want to hear. And we want to benefit from it. Do not prophesy to us right things we don't want to hear the truth we don't want to hear when we're wrong we don't want to know what the right is speak to us smooth things be a smooth talker (laughs) get out of the way turn aside from the path cause the holy one of israel to cease from before us can you believe that we have enough of this jesus talk we need some stimulation There are three parts to the documentary called The The American Gospel. One has not been released. Two have been released. One is Christ alone. The other one is crucified with Christ. And um, in that one, one of the leaders who started the emerging church movement said about the death of Christ, what is it about everybody so enamored about the death of Christ? And the cross. What is it that's, that's in it that's any different with any power that's changed? And I'm thinking, man, haven't you read the Bible? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it, the gospel, the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection is the power of God unto salvation. You can talk all that nonsense you want, but you will stand before an almighty righteous judge and give an account for that kind of behavior. People are saying, there was one fellow that started a, a, a church in a bar. He commended them to drink all they wanted while they were having church and don't forget to tip the waiters well. Same thing. Back in Isaiah's day. We don't want, get get out of the way, you prophets. We don't want to hear you. Enough of that Messiah talk. Enough of that. Okay, God says, therefore, I love a therefore. Because you always have to ask, why is there a therefore? Why is it therefore? It points you back to that passage. The attitude of those people. And notice what he says, because of the attitude of the people, because of their their stiff-neckedness, their rebellion, because of how they were, their refusal to repent, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall. A bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. He shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. 
the regal royal city, the walls, the temple, everything was about to come tumbling down. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they were rebellious children. And as a parent tries to tell to discipline a rebellious child, that rebellious child refuses to repent. They go further and further and further and further away from their parents. And so does the one who rebels against the Lord. It is the most horrible place to be in a place of rebellion. I'm not talking about messing up and stumbling and falling into sin and confessing, repenting, and and getting forgiveness. I'm talking about an obstinance to God, a refusal to acknowledge your condition, a refusal to turn from that sin. That is rebellion. Rebellion is repeated refusal to repent. And it only leads to destruction. Our day in our land, and I'm sure as is in Isaiah's and every epoch of time between, we are so far removed from the holiness of God and how wonderful He is and how holy He is, how righteous He is and how even the little insignificant things that we classify as little sins that don't matter are against His holiness. And typically, humanity in our flesh, we try everything else, and when we have exhausted all means, we turn to God and ask Him for help. Such is the case of Israel. And in verse 15, we see a promise. And this promise is predicated upon Obviously, the sovereignty of God and God knowing and, and the, the, the omniscience of God knowing all and seeing in the future. And through the prophet, he says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. Do you know that there were some in this day who were not rebellious? They were part of that faithful remnant that trusted the Lord, that remained faithful, that were protected from this judgment that came upon Judah at this time. And he makes this promise. It is in returning and resting. It's in repentance you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. May I say this? What he is saying is your strength does not lie in you. It relies in your relationship with the Lord. Zechariah said this, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It is only, and I repeat to you, only when we walk in the power and the spirit of the Lord that we are successful. 
that we have deliverance, that we have strength. It's in that returning and rest you shall be saved, but you would not. Ouch. You would not. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left as a pole on top of the mountain and as a banner on the hill. Ugh. Not talking, notwithstanding that faithful remnant that believed in him, he called the others to repentance, and they said, we won't. God said it's in returning and resting that you'll be saved. And they said, we won't do it. Rebellion. And so the enemy is going to come and they're going to run from the enemy and they think they're going to get away. And the enemy is going to pursue them and they're going to leave them as a pole on top of the mountain, as a banner of the hill. The hill will be scattered and left littered with bodies. Here's the promise. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. The Lord said he will wait. He's going to wait till that time. What's the time he's talking about? Verse 19, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver, your ornament of the molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. Then he will give you rain for your seed with which you sow in the ground and the bread of increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Remember, in that day is key. It tells us he's talking about the millennial kingdom. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and a fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters. In the day <coughs> of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, move over the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. As the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and the heals the stroke of their wound. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with anger, with his burden is heavy, his lips are full of indignation, his tongue like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream, which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. 
You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and a gladness of heart as when one goes with the flute to come into the mountain of the Lord, the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of his devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with the rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And in the battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. For Tophet was established of old. Yes, the king is prepared. He has made it a deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord like the stream of brimstone kindles it. He tells them that there's coming a day and that day is coming when the Lord will reign and they will have all their needs met. They will sing glorious songs. The sun will shine as seven days and the moon will be as the sunlight. And then toward the end, he says, but even immediately, as quick as Assyria moves into Israel and they destroy Jerusalem, God will destroy them. But hear me out. It will not be until Assyria has unleashed the judgment of God on Jerusalem. The day in that day, the day of the Lord that he talks about prior or not, not yet happened, it will not come until after the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, the Lord will lay hold of all those enemies. He will destroy all the enemies of Israel. He will take Satan and he will cast him in the pit for 1,000 years. He will be bound in the bottomless pit. During that 1,000 years, Jerusalem will live like they could have never like they've never lived before. But you know what the sad part is? God tells them even in the day they're in, they can live under his protection and his provision if they would just repent, but they would not. They would not. And so as I study this I go back to verse 1 and he says, Woe to the rebellious children. The Bible teaches us that all these things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our admonition. They were written for our learning. What can we learn from this? I will tell you this, and I mean this with all sincerity. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ and you are a rebellious child, you are in trouble. God will deal with your rebellion. Hebrews teaches us that He chastens those whom He loves. Chasten is correcting. And the Bible teaches us that when we're going through correction, it does not seem pleasant at the time, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There is a purpose for that. It is to correct us, get us on the right path, that we might do 
right. It is enough. Let me say it better this way. It, we should have enough with the world's way of doing stuff. We should be up to here in it, seeing that it is flawed. And as the days come, it's going to become more progressive. And they're going to try to dictate how we are to live and how we're to think and how we're to act. And we've got to stand with the Word of God. And we can't follow those pagan practices. And there's churches today that are lining up with unbiblical movements because they're afraid of them. They're afraid that they're going to lose popularity. And so they hitch to this wagon. And they hitch to things that God says in abomination. And we all know people who are stuck in these different lifestyles and we still have to preach it a sin. We can't just give it a pass because we know somebody. And they might be in our family. But this is the day we're living in. We have all these alliances of the world that want to bring us together. And what happens is when we link with the world, we lose the power and strength of God. And it is a farce to think that you and I can link to an ungodly thing in the world and think that God will bless it. Yet, denominations are splitting because they're having debates of who should be ordained. Can, can same-sex couples be ordained? And, you know, and I'll, I'll just say it, and I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings but women preachers the church today is facing women preachers and, and I'm not a sexist I'm just telling you the Bible says you show me how a woman can be the husband of one wife that's one of the qualifications of a pastor and we'll talk about it very gender specific but the world says no you got to give in you equal rights you got to do this that and this let's listen it has nothing to do with rights it has to do with everything with God's way And yet we are being lulled into these, these, for lack of a better term, unions that are unbiblical. How can two walk together unless they agree, the Bible says. And it's coming at the church. And you're told you have to accept this and you have to accept that. And you, you can't really, you shouldn't be using the Bible. You, you need to make it more palatable and make it to where people, no, listen, we've had 30 years of that. Bill Hybels, Willowbrook Church, or whatever it is, Willow Community Church, whatever it is, big, large guy, it was in the seeker-sensitive movement. Seeker-sensitive movement was we'll go out in the world and find out what people, lost people want in the church. We'll come in the church and do it, and they'll come. The only thing he found out was, after 30 years of doing that, he said, we have created nothing but a bunch of spiritually immature babies that want their needs met and don't want to do anything for the cause of Christ. So it has everything to do with how you, when you step out from God's way, it is rebellion. And when you read what God's word says and you say, yeah, I understand, but that was back then and that book is archaic. It's not archaic. It's eternal. We can't enter into these worldly alliances and have the power of God any more than Israel could enter into these pagan alliances and have, their, have the power of God on them. They couldn't. If we just do things God's way, He 
will bless. And I've already put my glasses up. Let me get them back out. Can I read this to you? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. There it means delivered. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Rest, strength, confidence, power only comes from being linked to Jesus Christ. Not the world. And so God help us. God help us. That we never cross that line and become rebellious children. And if we find that we have, may we immediately repent and turn and turn from our sin. Shall we pray? Father, we love you. We thank you. We adore you.